Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Foss Corporation, LLC. Welcome to the Mansion on the Hill. This is the home of Terry's Serious Moments. Stories of oddness, of weirdness of nature gone strange. This is season four. We thank you for coming along for the ride. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Terry's Mysterious Moments. I hope you had a wonderful Christmas and a safe New Year's. Down here in Texas, the battle for Fallujah reigned, and it sounded like we were under attack, but that's natural. And in a way, it's kind of comforting, because that was something that was normal, to end 2020 with a normal thing like fireworks. Let's jump right into the story, shall we? Last-minute shopping trips are a part of life. Birthdays that sneak up on you, suddenly remembered Christmas presents needed to be bought, they happen. So it really wasn't that unusual when a group of teens from Greensboro, North Carolina, decided to take a 150-mile round trip to Raleigh, North Carolina, for what was supposed to be a fun, last-minute Christmas shopping run. But this happy event turned into a nightmare for our group of focused shoppers on 23rd of December, 1988. 19-year-old Kenneth Lynn Dungey was a young student looking forward to college. On the afternoon of December 23rd, he joined his friends Laverne Allen III, Kenneth Newkirk, and Darius Bannerman on a trip to do some late Christmas shopping. They planned to take an hour and a half drive from Greensboro to Raleigh along Interstate 40. 17-year-old Laverne was driving his father's Plymouth Duster. He had just received a scholarship from the Air Force Academy. 19-year-old Kenneth Dungey was an engineering student planning on starting college in the fall. 17-year-old Kenneth Newkirk was in the back seat. He had recently received a scholarship to a local college. His 17-year-old cousin, Darius, was a high school basketball star. They had all been close friends for years. While driving along Interstate 40, they passed by a car driven by Grady Alexander. Seconds later, Grady noticed a blue Monte Carlo speeding past him, apparently following the Plymouth Duster. He noticed that the car had Georgia plates and that a man and a woman were in it. At this point, 
The occupants of the Plymouth Duster realized the Monte Carlo was closing in on them, and Laverne tried to speed up, but the vehicle remained right behind their rear bumper. Darius had taken a nap, but awoke to his friends talking about the car behind him. All of a sudden, the Monte Carlo hit the rear of the Plymouth Duster. Laverne sped up, weaving between cars in traffic in order to get the Monte Carlo away from them. The Monte Carlo continued to follow them, extremely close behind. Darius noticed that the other driver had an angry and a crazy look on his face, as if they had done something to him. The Monte Carlo's driver went around the side and then sideswiped the duster. He went behind him again and hit the back of the vehicle a second time. After being struck from the back several times, Laverne then lost control of the car and it went off the side of the road, and it flipped over and over and landed in a field. A few minutes later, at 2.30 p.m., police and paramedics arrived at the scene. Laverne was trapped in the car for half an hour. After being airlifted to a trauma center, his leg had to be amputated at the thigh. Ken Newkirk had suffered a fractured skull and a broken leg. Darius had a broken wrist and facial injuries. Sadly, Ken Dungey was pronounced dead at the scene. Eyewitnesses described a man and a woman in the Monte Carlo who briefly stopped and got out of the car to look. The woman yelled for the man to come back into the car, and the two of them then drove off. The police would like to speak to the man driving the car. Since Kenneth and his friends were African American, the accident was suspected to be racially motivated, but the killer or killers have yet to step forward to take the credit or the blame for the alleged attack. The light blue Monte Carlo had Georgia license plates and was driven by a man with dirty brown hair and a mustache. At the time, he was in his 20s. His female passenger had blonde or reddish hair and she was also in her 20s. They have never been identified. The story originally aired on the January 31, 1990 episode of Unsolved Mysteries. For unknown reasons, a photograph of victim Kenneth Dungey was not shown. You know, perhaps it was a family request not to do so. The case remains unsolved. Darius Bannerman has reported that he, Laverne, and Kenneth Newkirk have all started families and have successful careers. Unfortunately, he also noted that the assailant has never been located or identified. There was a female informant who did come forward, claiming that she knew the identity of the assailant and said that he was a friend of her brother's. The unidentified suspect had told the informant's brother that he had committed the crime. He stated that he was a wanted fugitive on Unsolved Mysteries and that he had ran a car of African-American teenagers off the road. Since then, this unidentified suspect has spent time in and out of prison. The informant has further stated that this man looked identical to the suspect sketch. However, it is unknown if this suspect was ever arrested or even questioned in this case. What kind of person would do something like this just because? Just because the four men in a relatively nice car were African American? Could it be because they were teenagers? Could it be the man just had something against Plymouths? 
You know, there's no explaining acts like this. In South Africa, back in 1967, South African Airways Flight 406, also known as the Reitbach crash, was a scheduled passenger flight that crashed into the sea on approach to East London, South Africa. All 25 souls on board were killed. The cause of the accident was never determined, although the air accident report speculated without supporting evidence that the captain of the plane may have suffered a heart attack while on approach and the first officer was unable to regain control of the aircraft. Like the crash of South African Airways Flight 295 two decades later, there was, and still is, great contention about the ultimate cause of the aircraft accident. It seemed, though, that a bad omen preceded the crash more than 50 years ago. Captain Leposky's day started with the flight departing from Johannesburg in the afternoon on a flight to Port Elizabeth with stopovers in Blemfontein and East London. After takeoff from Jan Smuts Airport, which is now O.R. Tambo International Airport, the front nose wheel would not retract due to mechanical malfunction. The aircraft returned to the airport and was repaired, and the same plane was used to continue the flight. At 3.50 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, the plane landed in East London in poor weather. On departure from East London, the plane suffered a bird strike and was inspected upon landing at Port Elizabeth, where it was determined to still be airworthy. From Port Elizabeth to Johannesburg, the plane was marketed as Flight 406. Knowing he might need to bypass a landing in East London due to poor weather, Captain Leposky took on more fuel than he would normally load for the flight between Port Elizabeth and East London. He also told the passengers scheduled to disembark at East London so that they were aware that they may need to overfly the airport. One passenger stayed in Port Elizabeth to wait for a better chance to land, while the other passenger decided to continue with the flight and stay overnight in Johannesburg if needed. At 4.41 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, Flight 406 took off from Port Elizabeth and a 4.58 Greenwich Mean Time weather report for East London was given. Acknowledgement of receipt of the weather report was given a minute later and the pilot further requested descent clearance from flight level 90, which is about 9,000 feet, and it was granted by air traffic control at East London. They requested the pilot to radio when he passed 4,500 feet. Now, they are descending at this point. The pilot was recorded at Port Elizabeth Tower saying that he was descending through 4,000 feet seaward of the coastline and about 20 miles away from landing at 5.06 p.m. GMT. The pilot was made aware that lights for both runways were on, but runway 10 was not available due to poor visibility. At 5.09, the pilot radioed to say that he was at 2,000 feet and had the coast in sight. The plane was not heard from again. Only one minute after this communication, the Reitbach crashed into the sea, killing all 25 people on board. Eyewitnesses at a nearby beach who saw the plane go down immediately notified police. 
there was minimal wreckage to work with for the subsequent investigation into the crash, and no bodies were ever recovered. Theories range from the pilot suffering a heart attack, as I mentioned earlier, to sabotage. Others believe the plane crashed due to structural failure as the wing may have separated from the body of the craft. The true cause of the crash has never been established. Could there be something a bit more mysterious behind this other than a failing airplane or human frailty? 13-year-old David Guerrero was something of a prodigy. He had a considerable talent for painting and attended an art academy in Spain. He was a shy boy who preferred to hang out with his brother or his parents. David received a wonderful opportunity in 1987 when he was invited to unveil his first artwork at the La Maison Art Gallery in town. In addition to this, a local radio host wanted to interview him about it. David and the radio station agreed to meet in La Maison after school and before David had to be at the art academy. David's father couldn't drive him to the interview and instead told him to remain in La Maison after the interview if it ran late and he would pick him up afterwards. David felt a little under the weather on the day of the interview. He left for the radio station about 6.30 p.m. At some point during the 10-minute walk to the bus stop, David disappeared. When his father arrived at the academy at 9 p.m., he couldn't find David anywhere. Upon approaching the gallery, he was informed that they hadn't seen the teenager that day. He drove home to check whether David was there and seeing that he wasn't, he went to the police station to report his son missing. The police interviewed many people over the course of their investigation, including all bus drivers that traveled the route David would have taken. Hundreds of anonymous tips were investigated without success. So baffled were the authorities that they even followed up on a claim from a psychic that the boy was living in a remote shrine. This too proved to be a dead end. Years passed and the trail, as well as the case, grew cold. In October of 2019, though, something occurred to make the police reopen David's case. A classmate of David's found an original drawing, which had been attributed to David before his disappearance, was sitting in her mailbox. On finding the artwork, she and David's brother, George, took the artwork to the police. The pencil drawing is thought to depict a person of interest from the original investigation. The police reopened the case to revisit the investigation to see if any new information had turned up. To date, David Guerrero still is missing. The Northwest Territories Valley of the Headless Men is steeped in lore and legend. Dark mountain spires pierce the fog against a steely sky, making Nahani National Park seem more akin to Mordor than Canada. The park can only be accessed by boat or float plane when intrepid travelers seeking to conquer the rapids of the Nahani River or summit the formidable Cirque of the Unclimbables want to. Its impenetrable forest and mountains may be the primary reason Nahani sees limited visitors, but perhaps it's also because the park is shrouded in macabre legends, 
befitting of its menacing landscape. Many believe this UNESCO World Heritage Site to be haunted. Nahani National Park, part of the Mackenzie Mountain region in Canada, has become known as the Valley of Headless Men, and with good reason. For thousands of years, the region was said to be evil, with many tribes refusing to settle there. The ones who did told of mysterious creatures inhabiting the vast forests and restless spirits stalking the area. The greatest danger is said to be the violent Naha tribe of the mountains. The tribe allegedly consists of deadly warriors who wear masks and armor. Larger than normal men, these fighters wield strange and unidentifiable weapons. They are notorious for decapitating their victims. In the 19th century, a whole tribe disappeared without a trace, and many attribute their disappearance to the Naha warriors. Another case was the 1908 disappearance of the McLeod brothers, who were searching for gold in the area. They were both found dead, with their heads missing, along a river bank. There are a great number of cases of decapitation in the valley. For example, gold miner Martin Jorgensen's skeleton was found without the skull in his burned-down cabin in 1917. When British writer and explorer Raymond Patterson set out to the Nahani region from Fort Smith in 1927, he received an ominous piece of advice, according to Neil Hartling in his book Nahani, River of Gold, River of Dreams. Men vanish in that country, and down the river, they say it's a damned good country to keep clear of. Lured by reports of gold in the area, brothers Frank and Willie McLeod journeyed from Edmonton, Alberta to the Nahani region in 1904. Traveling with primitive gear, they traversed hundreds of kilometers by train, boat, and foot during a numbingly cold winter until they reached Gold Creek. Their efforts were rewarded that year, and they returned to their home at Fort Liard with gold in hand. Not satisfied, the brothers made a second expedition into the Nahani Range in 1905. They never returned. Nothing was heard from Frank and Willie until Brother Charlie McLeod led a search in the park in 1908, where he discovered two skeletons at their camp on the river's edge in a vast valley. Their heads had been severed, and one man lay with his arm outstretched toward his gun. The blankets were thrown across his brother as if he had leaped suddenly from the bed, read reports. From that day forward, the valley has been known as Dead Man Valley and the creek called Headless Creek. More people have simply gone missing, with 44 unexplained disappearances by 1969. A large number of people also claim to have seen strange lights in the sky or a huge ape-like man walking among the trees. To this day, there is no explanation for the mysterious goings-on in the Nahani Valley. An answer is unlikely in the foreseeable future, as the region is still largely unexplored. 
It wasn't just the McLeod brothers who died or went missing in the park in the early 20th century. A Yukon prospector, Martin Jorgensen, met with a similar fate in 1917. He had sent news home that he had struck it rich in the area, and not long after, his decapitated skeleton was found outside his cabin, which had been burned to the ground, spawning rumors of headhunters in the valley in Canadian newspapers. Numerous other reports from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police confirmed similar deaths, and a good number of people have simply vanished without a trace after setting foot in the park. Around the same time in the park's history, a series of unexplained plane crashes earned an expanse of mountains the name the Funeral Range, which borders the ominous Hell's Gate Rapids. These seemingly supernatural deaths are only a part of the mystery that Nahani National Park is steeped in. Since the first Dine people settled there 10,000 years ago, the lore of hidden tropical gardens, mythical creatures, and spirits hiding in the park's hot springs and tufa mounds abounded. I once heard a Decho chief tell stories of an ancient giant of the area around Rabbit Kettle Hot Springs who would cook his food in the springs, says Joel Hibbard, owner of Nahani Wild. Whether giants roam the park or not, the hot springs do hold special cultural significance for the Decho, who leave offerings like tobacco at the springs for good luck. It's said that if the springs are full, it's an auspicious sign. Conversely, I assume if the springs go dry or lack water, then it's going to be a bad year. Later in the 19th century, UFO sightings and other strange lights were reported in the park, and to this day, fringe bloggers obsessed with cryptids recount stories of Amphisiodene, a predatory bear-dog hybrid that went extinct in the Pliocene period, prowling the valley, as well as signs of Bigfoot activity in forbidden parts of the park. Certain areas within Nahani are closed to visitors because of their sensitive ecosystems or cultural significance for the indigenous Dine people. But some say the restrictions are as much about containing the park's supernatural forces as they are about keeping people out. While the headless deaths have all been confirmed by police reports and attributed to less mystical causes, the greed and rivalry that marked the Gold Rush era, as well as the brutal, dangerous reality of isolation in the wilderness, the lore simply remains part of Nahani National Park's mystery and allure. What is real, though, is the park's sacred mythological presence in the collective Canadian psyche, which many work to help protect the area from further mining and environmental exploitation. People will protect a legend even if they have never seen it, notes Hartling, who's also the founder of Nahani River Adventures, in his book. Could it be that strange peoples live in this area? Are that long thought to be extinct animals still roam the landscape? 
These haunting, otherworldly accounts also serve as an allegory for the terrifying void that is nature itself. The fear of the unknown in a wild, uncharted land is part of the siren song that explorers will always answer. Our world is a weird place. That is a given. Weird noises, weird natural formations, weird lights, weird critters, weird happenings. There are places that have personalities. Some are just haunting. Some are just spiritual. But it's our world. We should enjoy it and we should embrace it. And in many ways, we need to show a healthy respect for it. Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks for being along for the ride. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. Aaron reads listener stories, mostly ghost stories, sometimes UFOs, sometimes cryptids. On Tuesday, Aaron Frail brings you Aaron's Horror Show, different things that he's written. He reviews movies, books, things like that. On Wednesday, it's me, Terry from Texas, with Terry's Mysterious Moments, where we talk about just about anything there is to talk about. And at the first weekend of the month, we have video from The Witching Hour and Unexplained Cases. Aaron has instituted a new area called Entertaining Short Films. That's exactly what they are. They're just short stories, nothing in particular, no particular genre, just entertaining. Remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have Apple or Android, download the RPA app, which is a black square with a blue eye in the middle of it. Download that to the device that you listen to the program on. Install it, and when you open that up, you can go straight to the Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, and its network. So all the all the stories that are involved with RPA are there, so you don't have to go hunting for them. If you want to contact me at Terry's Mysterious Moments, you can do that on the Facebook page, and it's called Terry's Mysterious Moments, or you can email me at Terry's Mysterious Moments at gmail.com. Contact me if you want to. Let's talk about some things. That's about it. We'll be back again. Listen to the other shows. Have a good week, everybody.